Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and it's great to have your company. When I arrive in Spain, I just, my shoulders drop, and I just feel, ah, here I am, I'm at home. And I don't really know why, because I just, but I just love it. I just feel so comfortable there. That voice you just heard is this week's guest, Ines Jewell, and you're going to love this interview. But first, this is a podcast about the Camino de Santiago, or the Way of St. James. The Camino is a series of pilgrimages across Europe. For centuries, pilgrims have walked the highways and byways of small towns and cities to the tomb of Christ's Apostle St. James in the Spanish city of Santiago de Compostela, or St. James under a field of stars. The great thing about the Camino is the sense of freedom. You simply get up each day and walk. Don't worry if when you do your research you see people walking 25 kilometres or even 30 or 35 kilometres a day. You can walk as far as you want. I met plenty of pilgrims who walked only 8 kilometres a day. I met pilgrims who walked 50 kilometres a day. Sometimes I walked extra long days, but mainly because I was lost. (laughs) You make your own decisions on how far you walk, on where you sleep, on what you're going to do each day before or after your long walk. It's the freedom to simply be that is the hardest to let go of when you get home. It's something so precious. Our journeys have slowed and narrowed over the last two years, but that wanderlust remains because we yearn to travel, to learn, to change, to simply be. To meet new people, new experiences, to listen, to talk, to sing, to dance in town squares, to stand at the side of the street festival in a town thousands of miles from home, to wander home from a restaurant to an albergue about to close its doors, so tired from walking, a little tired from too much dinner and wine, beneath the golden light of a Spanish town's streetlight, arm in arm with other pilgrims, a new day beckons, a new day of discovery. Hans Christian Andersen wrote, to travel is to live. I've told this story before. It's attributed to the Spanish writer Jordi Sierra y Fabra. A year before his death, the Czech-born writer Franz Kafka was walking in a Berlin park in Germany and he saw a little girl on a park bench crying. She had lost her beloved doll. Kafka told her the doll was not lost, It had gone on a trip. And over the next few weeks, he went back to the park each day and brought a letter with him from the doll to the girl, telling the stories of her travels. Some time later, the little girl no longer missed the doll. And Kafka presented her with another doll. And the girl said, but this is not my doll. And in a letter in the hem of the skirt, a note from the doll said, my travels have changed me. Years later, that girl, now a woman, found another note in a hidden pocket in the doll's gown from Kafka. It said, everything that you love, you will eventually lose. But in the end, Mm -hmm. love will return in a different form. My guest this week wrote to me with a story. Her name is Ines Jewell. She's on the line. Welcome, Pilgrim. Hello, hello there, Dan. That story just made me start to tear up anyway. So. <laughs> I love it. I've told it many times before and it's it just strikes a nerve with me. It's so beautiful. And I think that we all miss traveling. And when you wrote to me, you wrote about 
Now, I hope I'm going to pronounce this right because it's a German word, Fienwe, which is F-E-R-N-W-E-H, Fienwe. What is that? Fernwe. Fernwe. I think it's pronounced, I don't speak German, but I think it's Fernwe. Fernwe. Which is is like far far awayness. (laughs) So wanderlust, really, or the pain to see a far-flung place beyond our doorstep, but somewhere we've visited and we can't get back to. But, yeah, but usually somewhere that isn't necessarily where you're from, like nostalgia or homesickness is for your country of your birth or somewhere else that has a deep meaning for you um, genetically, if you like. But Ferre is just somewhere that you could might have only spent a couple of years, but that has been really significant in your, your, life, pat- your life journey. And you have that right now for the Camino. All but the be- time. <laughs> but we, before we get to it, Ines, you were born in Venezuela of British parents. You educated in England and emigrated to Australia yes. in 1975. So you just mentioned before about home. Where is home for you? Oh, that's a very difficult question. I usually say that home for me depends on who's asking the question. <laughs> um, I've done a lot of temporary agency um, office work in my life, so usually I just say what my current address is, you know, because yeah. that's easier. But home, for all sorts of reasons, is different for every for every question. Mainly Venezuela, I haven't been back to since I was eleven when I left, oh. um, for lots of reasons. And obviously, politically, it's very dodgy to go to now. Um, then England is still home with a capital H because my parents were sort of like remnants of the Raj and um, that's where the the grandparents lived. And that's what I thought home was, where your grandparents lived. And um, But then home, I mean, I did get here just before um, the dismissal in 1975, which was pretty momentous. Yeah. Um, but Australia is also home in very many ways. But Spain has over and above all of them trumped it really and i can't really explain why except that when i arrive in spain i just my shoulders drop and i just feel ah here i am i'm at home mm. and i don't really know why because i just but i just love it i just feel so comfortable there yeah do you think you're sort of wandering as a child and as a young person before settling in australia in 1975 do you think that contributes somehow to your wonderlust, to your 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 I, love of travel, I blame it. I blame it entirely on that, <laughs> <laughs> okay. because also during the years that I was um, in living in England, I was either if I was still at school, I was travelling out to wherever my parents were working, which included Japan, North Africa. Um, or a few other places as well. And then after I left school, I was just always doing it rather more cheaply, i.e. by hitchhiking all over Europe. So I've just always been on the move, I guess. And I I just love it. I can't get enough of new people and new places. Tell us how you first heard about the Camino de Santiago. Oh, well, that was really bizarre because um, I first heard about it in 1992, when really nobody else had, but I was visit- I was visiting the UK, um, well, for on family business, really. After a, a death in the family, I was sort of going home to check up on a few things. And I went to see an old friend of mine who was a novelist, and on her kitchen table, sh- table she had a map of Spain spread out. And I said, oh, are you planning a trip? Yes, I am. And she said, I'm going to take- hire a car and drive the length of the Camino de Santiago, because I'm writing a novel about a character who walks it. 
And I said, what's the Camino de Santiago? And she gave me a brief explanation, and I just thought it sounded wonderful. And at the time, I had a squad of small children and couldn't possibly take the time off. But I remember thinking in 1992, as soon as the time is right, that I can actually sort of leave them without too much of a guilty conscience, I'm going to leave and walk that because it just sounds wonderful. All those churches and old buildings, one of my favorite countries in the world, and it was one of my favorite countries even before I first did the Camino, and I can revive my Spanish and look at old churches. And, you know, I just thought it sounded like heaven on a stick, basically. So, mm. or heaven with walking sticks, maybe. <laughs> and so I, so, so I made the decision to do it. And that was 1992. And I didn't get to go until 1999. So it was, it was on the back burner for a very long time. That first Camino, though, was so special. Two reasons it was so special. Yeah. Tell us about walking the Camino in 1999. Well, um, it was all very tricky. I had to um, – there was just a lot of administrative detail to get out of the way. First of all, I didn't have um, the, the money for the fare because, um, well, with four kids, you know, everything was always very stretched and then out of the blue, a very dear old aunt, um, her husband died, and for some reason she sent me $1,500. And she said, which, you know, in 1999 yeah. or 98 as it was, was quite a bit more than it is now. And she said, look, I really want you to promise me you'll spend this on yourself because I know when I send you cash, you always spend it on the kids. <laughs> so I thought, I think I can exert a bit of selfishness here. And I looked in Flight Centre's window, and one of the first Camino miracles was that a return flight to Madrid was about $1,500. So I thought, oh, it's obviously meant to be. But 1998 was not a good time. I had kids doing VCE and all those other, you know, sort of life nightmares. And I thought, no, I think 1999 sounds good. There's no one in VCE that year. So I just dis – and then I had to get permission from work. And that was also tricky because they kept saying, you know, oh, you can't go at this time of year, you can't go at that time of year. So it had to be in semester break, which in Australia, of course, is June, July, mm. which is – possibly the hottest time of the year to walk, which is not good for me. But it was the only time basically I could get leave. So I said yes. And uh, I had to get a lot of uh, caucusing um, from my colleagues to say that they would cover me for various, you know, tasks that had to be done in my absence so that my rather nasty manager would let me go. And they all swung in beautifully and said, oh, it's such a wonderful opportunity, isn't it? You couldn't possibly not go. Of course we'll do it. I'll take over this and I'll take over that. They just were fantastic. So that was another sort of early Camino miracle. And I was only starting to recognize them retrospectively, really. That's, yeah. It's so great. But on that Camino, you met someone very special, didn't you? Yes, well, I mean, you know, these things happen. <laughs> I was, you know, sort of slaving along because I was a, I was 48, mother of four, you know, working in a, a clerical job, so fairly sedentary, not at all fit, and just basically stretched, you know, emotionally and everything else to the limit and needing a break. And I got there and the, the liberty, the liberty of just being Ines from Australia with no labels was absolutely heady stuff because I was always someone's mum 
or someone's employee or someone's wife. I always came with a label that immediately pigeonholed me. And I just found being free like that was fantastic. And I sort of trundled along doing the best I could. And then in Belorado, I was feeling quite almost lightheaded with the fact that I, I don't know, I'd managed to achieve 22 kilometers or something, you know, which was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. And in the queue for the albergue, which was at that stage in the old parish theater, um, I just was lightheaded, as I said, and there was this very far away looking bloke in front of me. And I said, oh, how was your walk today? And he said, oh, great. I feel really empty. And I thought, oh, if as as a mum and a worker, if I say I feel really empty, it's not a good thing. It means that I'm at the end of my tether, nothing left in the tank. But I so I said, Oh, is that a good thing? And he said, Oh yes. He said, Because now I can decide what I want to put back in. Huh. And I just that was our first conversation. And I thought, Oh wow. <laughs> you know? I suddenly felt very um I was very trivial by comparison. You know, I was just thinking, gosh, I walked twenty two K and the sun is shining, you know. So yeah, and we just really didn't stop talking from then on. And given that he had walked from his home in Holland, like he'd already been walking for about two and a half months when we met and was 65 kilos of lean, mean walking machine, um, we had really, he had to make an enormous effort to slow right down. Otherwise, you know, I'd have just never seen him again. But we kept talking and walking and had all these shared interests in music and education and all sorts of other stuff. And so we walked to Santiago together. Yeah. And you're still together today. And we're still together today, yes, 22 <laughs> years later. So. It's so great. He always says that his, his journey to Australia started with walking to Santiago. So. <laughs> it's so great. It's so great. And we're going to get to Rob. We've got so much to talk about because it's such a great story and you, when you wrote to me, you sent me your, the, the story, which I'll get to in a minute. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but uh, mm. you've walked a dozen Caminos since then. About that, look, Dan, I can't remember. I mean, I'm not being sort of, <laughs> yeah. I'm not being blasé, but because all of them have not been starting from point A and finishing sure. in Santiago, um, you know, I've done bits and pieces. I've had to bail out um, with injuries a couple of times. I've chosen to do you know, the Portuguese coastal on my own to do something. And I've done the Aragonés on my own just for, you know, because it fitted. I've walked, I mean, basically the, the Camino is my default position when things get sticky. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I walked after both my parents died, um, we went for a premarital Camino, actually, just before we got married. Um, the the marriage celebrant was very surprised that we were going to Spain for five weeks before we got married, and he just shrugged and said, "Oh well, I guess you'll I guess you'll be nice and relaxed by the time you get back." <laughs> <laughs> so. well, well, there's one year though that I'm particularly interested in, and and that's your work as a hospitalera, because you, you didn't just go for a couple of weeks when you did that, did you? No, no, we. Um, once I got back to Australia and and got unmarried, um, I then decided we have to de you have to decide with a long distance relationship something's got to give. You either wave it goodbye, or one of you makes the decision to move to the other side of the world. So initially, I moved to Holland, and I got a really good job there. And we were living this kind of 
rather unrealistic, in a way, life of, you know, plays and theatre and films, but always just yearning for Spain. So at the end of that year, Rob quit his career of 26 years he'd been with that organisation and we bought a VW combi van and we quit jobs and everything, gave up our flat and drove to Spain to become hospitaleros. We didn't really know how this was going to work. I mean, talk about taking a flying leap. It makes me shudder now. I would kill my kids if they did something like this. <laughs> um, we got to Spain and we learned that you can't just rock up. You have to do a little course um, before you can be accepted and then they, you know, then they send you somewhere to work. Uh, normally people, as you know, only do it for two weeks because it is hard, hard yakka. It's 6 a, basically 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. seven days a week. Yeah. And most people can only cope with that for a fortnight and then they go home to normal life. But we, in our folly, and we were both about to turn 50, decided that we would like to do this full time and we would like it ultimately to buy a building and make it into the albergue perfecto. So we went to see the priest at that stage who was in charge of all the voluntarios, Don Jose Ignacio, who was based in Granon, who is a legend, was a, well, still is a legend, but has very little to do with hospitaleroing. And we went and saw him and sat down anxiously in front of the priest, you know, because I'm still old-fashioned enough to feel nervous about that. <laughs> and we said we wanted to be hospitaleros, and he said, oh, have you done the Camino? And we said, oh, yes, yes, we have twice because we'd done one in the meantime. And he said, and, and you want to be hospitaleros? And we said, oh, very much, very much. And he said, well, you're in. But you do have to do a three-day course. And we said, where do we sign up? And he said, well, there isn't another one till the 1st of March. So that was a bit of a problem because we had this sort of gap to fill. So that's when we went off and did a midwinter Camino, which was quite challenging. We met 12 people between Roncesvalles and Santiago. Oh. 12. Can you envisage a Camino of that length meeting 12 other people? <laughs> no, it's very weird. It's very. It's a totally different situation. But anyway, we did it and came back and did the Cursillo, which was hysterical, a real... It was, apart from anything else, a total immersion in Spanish culture because most of it was conducted over extremely lengthy lunches and went on into the wee hours of the morning. And they used to like to finish up with candlelit storytelling in a circle. Well, by the end of a day where I've been trying to participate in a basically an in-service training program in Spanish, <laughs> there were 24 of us. There was Rob and I, and there was one American girl who was genuinely bilingual, but Rob and I were really struggling, you know. <laughs> but they were lovely to us, and we finished it. I fell asleep at the candlelit storytelling sessions a few times. <laughs> and then and then we were, um, yeah, then we were sent off to our first posting, which was Navarrete, for six weeks. Because we told the priest that we wanted to be permanents because, you know, of our long-term plan. Yes. So we didn't have a business plan, but we did have a plan. And um, and he said, okay, well, try six weeks at Navarrete to start with. And we ended up being one of a small group of six, what were called the permanents. Um, there was another couple, and then there was a, a German lady and a Scottish fellow. And there was just the six of us permanents who could sort of be sent 
anywhere for little periods of from two weeks upwards. And um, so that's how we did such a, ho- a long list of hospi postings that year. And we did it for a whole year. Yeah. Did you enjoy it overall? Oh, it it was the the single best thing I've done other than having four kids and doing the Camino the first time. Wow, that's fantastic. That's great. I mentioned in the introduction, Ines, that it's been two years now that we haven't been able to travel here in Australia and indeed, oh, indeed tell many, me about it. Yeah, <laughs> many parts of the world. And you mentioned just a moment ago that the Camino is your default position when the going gets tough. Yeah. That must make the Fianve so much more difficult to bear. We can't travel even if we wanted no. to. No. Oh, that's it's when, you know, when the when the, the when if you pardon the French, the shitty bits, when they're COVID, they, you can't do anything to for self help, you know. Yes, yes. So but you'll be pleased to know that we are booked to fly out on the eleventh of April. So I'm oh. reading the news anxiously and we're hoping to walk for a month and then do some catching up with our European family. Because they were, uh, we were actually in Spain when COVID broke. We had to curtail a Camino and hot foot it over to get the last flight out of Barcelona, basically. We flew into Tullamarine on the 15th of March, which, if you remember, yes. was the night the borders closed. Yes. And it was absolutely hair raising, and we had to lop off. Because we usually, fin- after all our walking, we then head off and just chill, at, you know, the, the European families for a couple of weeks to before we come back. So because they're always tagged on to the end of our walking, they missed out in 2009, uh, 2020, February, March. And um, so we haven't seen them for three over three years now. I've got a new grandchild I haven't even met yet. So. Yeah. I've said over the last couple of weeks, Australia's borders are reopening. I think it's only a matter of time now, and fingers crossed everything stays the same. The reason we are talking today is you sent me an essay, The Pint-Sized Pilgrim, and I just loved it so much because it, it was all about a grandmother's love for her grandson and an opportunity mm. really of a lifetime for both of you. Mm, absolutely. Lucas is never going to be seven again. And you're never no. going to have that opportunity to take that snowy haired boy with you through the wilds of Spain to see, as you say in that piece, the Camino through a fresh set of eyes. Not just somebody who's walking it for the first time, but somebody who is on a genuine adventure, a real mm. life boy's own adventure. Mm. It's so wonderful. You wrote to tell me that that Camino with Lucas was one of the best things you've ever done. What does he it say? Was. What does he say about it now? Oh, he just well. Last time I went down to visit them in Melbourne, they've just moved into a new house, and he said, "Oh, come, come in," because they all call me Nin. Yeah, come into the into the study because I want to show you something. And I thought, "Oh, I wonder what this will be." And he climbed up on his chair, and on the very top shelf of the library shelves in the study. He's got a little place of honour for the book of photographs that I made him of our Camino. And, and then he said, and when I got my bedroom, he said, where Dad put the bunk bed, I had to have, I had to move my credential because, of course, he's got his credential yeah. framed yeah. like all good pilgrims. <laughs> he said, I had to get Dad to move it. He put it over there where I can't see it last thing before I go to sleep at night. Uh-huh. So, 
So it's absolutely, absolutely penetrates. Every, it drips through every part of his daily life. Lovely. It's just weird. It's, it's wonderful, absolutely. Because, I mean, I took a punt. In fact, there were several members of my family who thought I had rocks in my head because Lucas had actually been diagnosed with ADHD just shortly before we left. Now, ADHD doesn't happen to boys who are actually out walking in fresh air every day and doing exciting things. It only happens when you nail them down in a desk at school and say, now work and do this. So he's actually, you know, being treated now and he's fine. But um, several people thought, oh, you know, she's really she's really bitten off more than she can chew this time. And it was absolutely one of the best things I've ever done. And I think for him, too. And just things like he's got such a good ear for language at that age, of course. And, you know, a lot of Australians, with all due respect, have, with no second language experience, have got a really tin ear for accent. And just before we left, he said to me, Nin, I can't understand. Why does everyone call it Burgos when it's called Burgos? <laughs> and I thought, I thought my work is done. Yeah, <laughs> he's, that's he's great. Actually, he's actually hearing the accent, and he started learning to buy ice creams in Spanish. Um, and he would just talk to anyone. The great thing about Lucas is he is not a, a shrinking violet. He's not a cocky kid, but he will talk to anyone. You know, wonderful. And um, it was just fantastic. People were so open to him because he was one of the only children I saw on that Camino. There was a Belgian family with three kids on a cycling Camino, but he was the only child walking. And, of course, it, the Spanish just love the idea of grandma taking a grandchild, you know. And, of course, he's ash blonde, so that really helps too. <laughs> yeah. What did you call it? You called it Abuela Camino. Abuela Camino, that's that's gran, Granny Camino in Spanish. That's oh. so great. That's so great, the Granny <laughs> way. What did Lucas's parents think when you approached them about it to begin with? Well, that was a bit anxiety-inducing because I thought, obviously, um, I, I said to Lucas, uh, you know, I didn't ask him first because I thought he will say, yes, he would love to go, and if his parents yeah. aren't happy with it, or maybe he won't want to go and then he would feel awful because we've got such a good relationship that he wouldn't want to hurt my feelings. So I went to his parents first. Now, his mum has done the Camino. His mum, when she was 21, came to stay with us when we were hospitaleroing. And she did the Camino from Navarrete because that's where we were working. She stayed with us a couple of days and then headed off. So she's done the Camino. She knows what it's, well, she knows what it's all about as in 20 years ago. But um, so it wasn't alien to her. So I went and talked to them and I said, look, I'd really love to take him and I think it would be fabulous for both of us. And she said, I'll put it to him. I said, good, that would be good. I want it to come from you. So she said to him, now this is an indication of just what an amazing child my grandson is. She said, would you like to walk across part of Spain with Nin? And he said, oh, he said, um, that would make Tomo very sad. That's his next brother down, who's only 14 months younger. That would make Tomo very sad. And, and I said, oh, no, you know, this is a special treat for you. And, you know, Tomo will get his turn. So then he said, oh, but I, I wouldn't understand what anyone was saying to me, he said, was his second worry. And she said, well, you're very lucky because your nin actually can talk Spanish. He said, oh, that's, yes, I'd love to go, please. <laughs> so having cleared it, having cleared it that it wouldn't upset his next brother down and that he would be able to understand what people were saying to him, he was perfectly fine with it and he didn't look back. So... What a lovely child to consider his little brother. 
Exactly. And yeah. Well, actually, his lucky little brother, if it all goes well, is going with me in um, in there, September. There you go. So there that, you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, and he's beside himself. <laughs> How does a seven-year-old Lucas handle a 27-hour flight? Well, that was the other amazing thing. He um, He's very skinny, so although he's as tall as a beanpole, he sort of can fold himself up. So even though it was full in those far-off days, <laughs> a full set of three across, um, he just sort of curled up and one bloke said, do you want to put your feet up on my lap, which was really lovely. Um, and he slept most of the way there. there but go. then we also checked into a hotel on arrival and he slept for about 12 hours straight. Right. And then got up and just hoovered up the food, <laughs> really just hoovered, and then just didn't stop, really. Yeah. But coming back was harder because it always is coming back, and it's not just because we're sorry it's all over. It is actually genuinely harder coming back. And uh, he slept for 13 hours straight when he got home. So, But uh, he, he he watched a lot of Harry Potter movies. Um, he reads a lot, and he was started writing his journal um, and he wrote a journal all the way through, yeah. which is great for downtime. You know, when you're waiting for the albergue to open or you're waiting for dinner to be served or something, you can fill in your journal. And we both wrote a journal. So, we, you know, it would be journal time, Lucas, and we'd sit down and fill them in, you know. so Yeah. And uh, just one of the, the stories you tell in the piece that you wrote was he had an idea of getting his daily cellos in his journal and he asked you, yes. do you think it would be okay? And you said, well... Well, you go, you go and ask the hospitalero, and and and, what yeah. he, and, and that yeah. was the first time you heard him say something Spanish. Anything in Spanish, he said, "Say yo por favor," and I just, I oh, I nearly burst with pride <laughs> <laughs> because he really he had the idea that it would be lovely to have a say yo apart from in his credencial to have one on that page of his journal. He had that idea, yeah. and I think that I mean I know lots of people do it, but he had the idea independently and asked me, obviously thinking that I would go and do it for him. And I said, "No, no, you go and ask." And I told him the word for he knew it was sello and he knew what please was because I'd sent him a Spanish vocab sheet before we left and I was testing him on it before we left because I said, you've got to make an effort here, man. So he had a Spanish vocab sheet with sleeping bag and bunk bed and albergue and he, we had a section on manners and he knew the word for grandma and grandson because that was important. And um, and he just, you know, started taking it off. So it was great. I, I loved where you wrote uh, that in that journal, he didn't just write about his observations and experiences. Other pilgrims wrote in his journal for him. They did. Every time people saw him writing, um, there, there was an Irish guy who wrote, you know, the May the Road Rise to Meet You? Of course. But he wrote the, he wrote that pilgrim blessing in Gaelic, but phonetically so that if you could take the time, you could read the Gaelic phonetically, which was just, I thought, such a lovely, kind thing to do. And I, Lucas has probably never tried to read it phonetically, but he, you know, it was just, he was just, and he was one, somebody who said to me, um, take my phone number in case you get into strife, you know, because I, I, I'll come back and help you. He somehow seemed to think that my grandmotherly capacities might be sorely tested. <laughs> and, uh, and then he did lots of other things to other people. His a beautiful young Italian guy who'd been made un, redundant was, as so many young people on the Camino are doing, a redundancy Camino. And um, he sat down, and I've just got a fabulous picture of him 
looking over Lucas's shoulder at his journal and then writing this note to, um, what is it, Mio Piccolo Amici, which is apparently Italian for my little friend, which I thought was great. Mm-hmm. And he's so wide-eyed and open that everyone would talk to him. So Yeah, and having seen only one other or, or no other children other than the three cycling, what did other pilgrims mm-hmm. make of Lucas in in a, in a wider sense, was were they friendly to him, or was it? What did you observe? That was something I found really interesting. Women generally didn't have any time for him, and I could only conclude that most women were getting away from sort of childcare duties. It was blokes who were just fascinated by, it. and of course. He was he grow he's got four brothers three brothers and he grows up in a very blokey family so yeah. at times I could see he was really missing male company you know and so but blokes particularly were much more interested in finding out about him than women that was absolutely from for the whole two weeks it was always the blokes old and young who wanted to engage him in conversation yeah. and I thought that was amazing he met a couple of those two lovely young men, uh, um, one from Canada and one from the UK who were walking together, but they were about 28 and fit as trouts. And so they walked slowly with us for a while. And when we got started to get towards Bellarado, they picked up the pace and, and Lucas is there trotting alongside them. And I'm going, sorry, mate, I can't keep up this pace. They're 28 and fit, you know. Yeah. And he was really upset. He said, but I, I'm so enjoying talking to Liam and I forget what the other one was called. I, I just want to keep up with them. And I said, look, this is one of the lessons of the Camino is I've often met people that I would love to have spent more time with, but they were on their journey and my journey was not going that fast. <laughs> but he, uh, he, he he took it in, but it really, at one, he was going, I do, can't we walk faster? And I'm going, no, sweetie, that's, that's one of the downsides of going with your granny, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Ines, how far did you and Lucas walk each day on average, do you think, then? Um, ten to, between ten and fifteen. Could he have walked further, or did you determine how far you walked? The first day, he um, he got very tired legs. We were climbing up to Castrojeriz from Estella, and he kept saying, "Oh, my legs are so tired. My legs are so tired." But by the second day, he really was toughening up. And generally speaking, I then had to say. Um, also, he just talks. He talks incessantly. He wants to know everything. And, you know, so we would be doing mental arithmetic. We would be reciting poems. We would be singing endless songs, you know, 10 green bottles type songs. And in the end, I used to have what we called um, meditation Camino time, Lucas. <laughs> you, will walk, you, will, you will walk ahead of me and you will meditate. And I will walk about 20 paces behind you and I will meditate. But meditation didn't hold much fascination for him, unfortunately. <laughs> and he'd always be back saying, what's that? What's that? <laughs> Can I eat these grapes oh, off these grapevines? Yeah. <laughs> so fantastic. What did you talk about? Oh, everything and every, anything. He, he wanted to hear, obviously, like all kids do, the story of his birth, because I, although I wasn't in the room, I was there straight after he was born. And the story of my birth and my childhood, my years in boarding school, which he called boring school. And I said, that's actually very appropriate. Um, Oh, everything and anything. Um, Basically, just he would ask a question and then it would just roll from there. Like he was looking at fig leaves at one time and their interesting shape. 
And I said, oh, you know, they, the old sculptors used to use fig leaves, Lucas, to put across men's private parts when it was considered rude to show them on a naked statue. And he looked at me with these big round eyes. Really? And I thought he'd then forget about it. It was just a one-off comment about it was used in statuary. And about a day later, we were sitting in a cafe having a meal, and they had one of those really gross Rococo sort of semi-religious paintings with loads of cherubs fatly lolling around. And they had no fig leaves. And he looked up, munching on his spaghetti, and said, hmm, they could do with a few fig leaves, couldn't they, Min? <laughs> so it had all sunk in, you know. You think you think it's just a throwaway remark, but it had sunk in, the use of fig leaves in art. So. That's lovely. That's really lovely. Tell us about the chance encounter with birds on the path bobbing along in front of you, bouncing ahead of you, oh. a, a reminder in a way of the pilgrimage of St Francis. Of a sissy. Yeah, well, I, I was told that by a fellow pilgrim many pilgrims, many pilgrimages ago about how um, apparently St. Francis often had, who did the Camino in bare feet, I might add, um, apparently had birds would sort of hop along in front of him showing the way. So, again, there was this bird that would fly about three metres and then sit on the fence and then wait until we approached and then it would fly off again about another three metres, literally hopping along in front of us. And I, so I told Lucas the story about St Francis of Assisi is supposed to have been guided on his pilgrimage by a bird doing exactly this or several birds doing this. And he just thought that was fantastic and, and took all those stories he just soaked up and they're in there on his little hard drive somewhere, I suppose. And he just, sometimes now he comes out with stuff, I think, fancy you remembering that, you know, yeah. when there was so much going on. And, um, and and there was nothing that was too much trouble for people to do for him, you know. And the other thing is, of course, when you're a bit um, not disruptive, it's not disruptive, it's just disorganised. People get exasperated with you as a child. And I think he was very used to a lot of, oh, Lucas, you know, like, you've knocked that over again or something like that. But he said to me at nearly nearing the end of this Camino, he said, you know, everyone here just loves me, Nin. Oh. And I, I nearly broke, <laughs> burst into tears because it was so true. Everybody did love him. And in, there was nothing that was too much trouble. We got somewhere and I said, what do you want for dinner? And he said, oh, spaghetti, of course. And they said, oh, we're out of spaghetti. It was a tiny bar. And she said, but I'll go and make some specially. And she went out the back to make spaghetti just for Lucas. And and that's when that was the bar. He said, you know, everyone just loves me here. Yeah. So, and it's true. And, you know, when you talked earlier about seeing the Camino through a fresh set of eyes and, and I was reading your piece and I saw where you said that a couple of heavy rain showers brought out an array of slugs and snails and sundry other mini yes. beasts and yes. they all required close examination. Well, of course that's the kind of Camino that a seven-year-old boy would walk, that you and I wouldn't necessarily oh. walk, and it must be yeah. a fascinating place. I mean, it's straight out of some sort of J.R.R. Tolkien journey, it is. isn't it? Is. It is. It's, it's completely... Um yeah, he he was he was just like a sponge, Dan. Yeah. Absolutely like a sponge, and there was nothing big or small. On the, but the best thing, of course, was the churches. He didn't know what churches were, 
he has a lovely, lovely family, but I'd have to say that God does not play a large part in their daily lives. And this is perfectly fine with me, but he, of course, it does mean that there's big sort of question marks in the real world, particularly in Europe, and he said to me, what are these big buildings? And I said, well, this is clean slate stuff, (laughs) you know. I said, well, they're called churches. Oh, he said, what are they for? Okay, Dan, what would you say? (laughs) Well, good question. I don't know quite what I would say. Well, I said, well, there's sort of a bit, and this is where you have to just bite your tongue and say, I said, there's sort of a bit like community meeting centres where people come together to, you know, be friends with each other and support each other. And um, they listen to a man called a priest who stands up at the front and he usually tells a story and then, you know, has some talk. And um, and I was, I was sort of rambling on like this, trying to make it as yeah. um, unreligious as possible. And um, he said, oh, I'd love to go to one of those meetings. And I said, oh, they're called mass, darling. And um, and he said, well, can I go? I said, well, they're really late. I said, they're at eight. At most of these villages, mass is at eight o'clock at night. And I said, you and I are always in bed nearly by then because yeah. we leave at six in the morning. And he said, I'll have a siesta, he said firmly. So he had an early lunch and we went and he got into his bunk and he had a siesta. And then he woke up and said, now we'll be ready to go to that meeting. So I, gro- I groaned and went into mass and, of course, all the grandmas were looking at him and pinching his cheek and everything. And we sat there and mass started. Of course, he didn't understand a word because it's all in Spanish. And the man indeed indeed did tell a story, as I said he would. But then people started queuing up for communion. And he said, oh, why are they all lining up? (laughs) I thought, oh, God, the transubstantiation is a bit tricky in whispers (laughs) at the back of mass. So I said, well... They're lining up to get a sip of wine and a biscuit. I thought, strike me dead. (laughs) And he said, do even the kids get the wine? (laughs) And I said, no, 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 they don't. Well, I'm not not sure, mumble, mumble. Then they made the sign of peace, and he was just blown away. He's there solemnly shaking hands with all these old ladies and gents in the back two rows in Los Arcos. And I thought, this is amazing. Then he lit a candle. He lit two candles. He asked me why there are candles. (sighs) Here we go again. I said, well, people light a candle when they want to say a prayer, and I thought, no, 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 too tricky, when they want to have a special wish for somebody that they love or they may be worried about or who may be sick. Do you think I'm going well here? (laughs) (laughs) Starting from the ground up. And I said, um, so he said, I'd like to light a candle. In fact, I'd like to light two. So I gave him the, you know, the coins to put in the box and off he went and solemnly lit the candles. Didn't ask him who he was lighting them for. I just, that was his private matter. And he came back looking very sort of satisfied. Yep, that's that job done. And it was just unbelievable. Oh, that's it. But the other thing was, Dan, oh dear. He looked up and he said, what's that bloke doing hanging up there? Mm. Now, <clears throat> that was um, a crucifix. <laughs> And I said, oh, well, that's a crucifix, and that's um, that's Jesus, and he's in all these churches. And after that, every time we went into a church, he'd go, yep, yep, there's one in here too. <laughs> and he seemed surprised at the uniformity of the presence of crucifixes. Amazing. But, I mean, it's it was so interesting for me 
to see and to try. I mean, because everybody I've ever grown up with, and even I didn't have a particularly religious upbringing, but I went to a Catholic school, and I, I, mean, I just can't, I couldn't begin to realize coming from zero comprehension, you know, having to really have it explained in terms of the man up the front is telling a story and the people are lining up for a sip of wine and a biscuit. Um, it's, it's really very, very illuminating. Hmm. Wow. That is such a... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, what a, an extraordinary experience for you to go through with him alongside you. You wrote to me to say that some elements of the Camino are universal. I watched Lucas make friends and learn from them, then lose them. I watched him learn to take responsibility for the simple chores of life, like laundry. I saw him reach out to help, mainly to me, when I missed signage anywhere. Whether you're seven or 70... It's a great leveller. So what did you learn about yourself on this Abuela Camino, Ines? Mm. <laughs> I learnt that probably, the in a way, the Camino can do no wrong. It, it's, it's always a good thing, even on the really rough days, of which I have to say there weren't any. There, it's always a good thing, and it always has something sparkly to just hit you between the eyes with some new insight and you I was I'm just always thinking even now wow I never thought of that or you know mainly usually through people I'm talking to I get into a deep conversation with someone and think that is a a viewpoint I had and not not because well you don't often meet many well, really rabid, rabidly dreadful people because the Camino is a great leveller in the sense that most people are really thoroughly lovely. Um, I mean, I met one or two rat bags, I'd have to say, but um, but mostly people are so lovely and so interesting. So what I learned about myself is, I mean, it gave me a whole new prism, basically. I mean, I, I'm, I hoover up people. I mean, I just, it sounds very sort of, predatory but I really love talking to people and finding out where they're coming from what makes them tick what their story is what their life story is and um which of course is you're on you're heaven on a stick in on the Camino with that with that um predilection um but seeing it through the prism of Lucas's eyes just oh it just really opened up so many more insights it was just fabulous absolutely fabulous in the piece you wrote, you said uh, there are six points of advice for anyone who's considering a Camino with a child. Choose your child well. I think that's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Old enough, you say, to carry their own gear as well as do the walking. Be The second one, be familiar with where you plan to walk. Uh, three, tailor your Camino. Yours was about 14 days of 12 to 15 days on the Camino Frances. Mm-hmm. Keep a journal for use in idle times as well as the end result. Include lots of breaks is number five at interesting points along the way. Number six, relax and enjoy the great company. I, mm-hmm. I wonder, do you think it's for everybody taking a child oh, no. on the Camino? No. Well, I mean, parenthood isn't for everybody. Um, mm. So why would, why would taking a – because most people – who maybe who haven't been back up to the Camino as often as I have, it is they're doing it for a reason, and it's not a holiday reason generally. It's for all sorts of deep reasons of 
personal time, contemplation time, you know, it's not something you want a kid around all the time saying, what's this, what's that? Whereas for me at this, at that stage of my life, nearly 70, I was really, it was gorgeous for me, you know, because it was a whole new set of insights, but it certainly isn't for everybody. Um, it's for, actually for very few people, I think, the more I, I looked around and, um, yeah, the more I looked around me, I thought, no. And mo- I don't know many of even my contemporaries who would want to take it. I mean, they love their grandchildren, that goes without saying. But very few of them would want to take them on a Camino. <laughs> so, it was a lot of work. Yeah, but it wasn't really because, I mean, how much work is involved in what we do? We knew where we were going to be most nights. And this is, of course, pre-COVID, so all the albergues were open. It was in a lovely, lovely time of year. We went in September, late September, got back just at the beginning of October. And it's that's just my favourite time of the year on the Camino, the, the harvest time, yeah. the grapes are all coming in, the red peppers are all being harvested. And it it really wasn't a lot of work. It was some of the easiest travel ever, Partly because, of course, he was so exhausted, he went to bed early and went to sleep very quickly. But even when we were, you know, as I said, even when I had to step in and say, okay, we're having a bit of meditation, Camino now, that would just be when I was exhausted from singing and mental arithmetic and reciting poems and asking, <laughs> answering questions about answering questions about slugs and you know. <laughs> so, so you just have to know. And the thing is, he's because we do have such a had well, do still have an incredibly good relationship, and I've seen quite a lot of them in their time. Um, there's no, there was not a second of behavioural problems. Maybe one day when I let him have a pan chocolate, a chocolate croissant, along with a hot chocolate suddenly the chocolate hit just went to his head and he was literally bouncing down the road. And I thought, hmm, rookie mistake there, Ines. (laughs) Rookie mistake. Hot chocolate and a chocolate croissant, get over yourself. (laughs) Well, at this point of of the podcast, I normally ask my guests to tell us a Camino story, but you've told us so many. I wonder, do you have one? Do you have one more? There's just lots of people that I, when I think back, over all the Caminos I've done, that really, I suppose the Camino has also brought a couple of lifelong friends, apart from Rob, obviously. Um, But in 2005, um, there was a bit of a sticky patch there and Rob was studying incredibly hard and totally unavailable. So I said, oh, stuff it, I'm going to go. And luckily my dad was so, he decided he wasn't traveling anymore and he gave me his frequent flyer points, which was lovely. So I whizzed over and walked for, I think, about eight weeks. And on that walk, coming down the hill from Castro Jerez, if you remember that really steep hill going up, and then on the other side you walk with relief down, I sat down to eat a piece of sandwich and I was just having a lovely time and this rather well-built Irish bloke in his probably nearly 40 coming towards me. And I just said, hello, how are you? Oh, he said to me, buenos dias. And I said, oh, hello, how are you? And he said, oh, I thought you were Spanish. I said, oh, don't be silly. (laughs) And then I said, how are you? And he said, well, he said, to be sure, I've grown a neck. And I thought, what an extraordinary reply to the question of how are you? So I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, look, he said, I was so stressed and burnt out leaving work, and I did only start from Roncesvalles, but he said, I have grown a neck. Oh. 
And I thought that was such a brilliant expression of wow. tension. He, he had left work with his, literally his shoulders up round his ears, you know, and that by Castro Herith, he'd grown a neck. And we became oh. firm friends and we walked all the way on to, well, only to about Molina Seca, actually. And then he had to get a move on because he had, you know, commitments. So he stormed off. But since then, we have walked together three times. He has been to Australia to visit us twice. And oh. we're just great buddies. We correspond all the time. And we're just really good friends. And I, he is such a bonus because, and it was all from that first remark. It's a bit like Rob's first remark about, I feel so empty and that's really great because I can decide what to put back in. Those, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And those comments were just branded on my forehead, you know. <laughs> so. that's, oh, Ines, that is such a great story. Look, yeah. I've thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed talking to you. I have to tell my listeners, Ines and I were writing back and forth and, she sent me, a, the, sent me the article, The Pint-Sized Pilgrim, and I loved it. And I quickly invited her to appear on the podcast, and Ines wrote back to say she wasn't, quote-unquote, taking her harp to the party, <laughs> as your grandma used to say, right? <laughs> My grandma used to say that. People who want to sort of blow their own trumpet and take their harp to the party and nobody asks them to play, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great saying. I'm so glad you brought your harp to the party. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for the joy you've given us, and I'm sure the joy you've given your family, in particular Lucas, who I'm certain will listen to this podcast and be thrilled that his journey is resonating with people all around the world once more, and so it should. I feel certain his travels have changed him. Thanks, Ines. I think so. I think so. Thanks very much, Dan. It's been good fun. Thank you. Buen camino. Oh, buen camino, peregrino. <laughs> My guest this week, Ines Jewell. If you'd like a copy of The Pint-Sized Pilgrim, drop me an email, danmullinsmusic at gmail.com. I'll finish with a quote from Hans Christian Andersen. To travel is to live. Thanks for your company this week and every week. Until next week, I'm Dan Mullins. Buen camino. <laughs>